0: Parents, what are the commands that you give most to your kids? If years from now, I were to ask your kids, what are the commands that ring most in their ears because of the years of repetition that you've said to them? What would those commands be? And even without knowing you, from those commands, I could learn a lot both about you as the parent and about your kids. Just the other day, I was... Uh, my, my drawer would not go in so I was about to violently shove it in because of frustration then all of a sudden I heard my, my mom's voice ringing in my ears be gentle because she would say that to me all the time growing up because to be honest out of impatience I had a tendency to break things when I was frustrated um, even still today when I'm eating in public I can hear her voice in my, in my ears don't make any sounds don't make any sounds because that was, that was important to her. And so if you take those two things, be gentle and don't make any sounds. I mean, obviously, clearly you can tell if she was raised like a caveman or something like that. Yes. <laughs> but in the same way, what does the command repeated most in Scripture tell us? And what can we learn from that? More than any other command repeated in Scripture, roughly over 300 times, is the command, Do not fear. Do not fear. If our all-wise God repeats this command so much, one thing is certain is that we're all prone to fear. So this morning, let me ask you, what are you afraid of? So on the grand scale, we we have the war in Ukraine. We have the rising price of goods. We have a government that that does not submit to God. And that's just to list a few things. But on the personal level, Some of you have impending moves to uh, another city. Some of you just moved to this location, whether it's sickness for you or for for a loved one or financial struggles, parenting struggles, marriage, just, just to name a few. And there's plenty more. Well, this morning we're going to be in the glorious psalm, Psalm 27, a psalm of David that is written specifically to instruct us how we biblically deal with fear. Now, this psalm is rich in truth. And it's my understanding that this psalm has been preached on before in this congregation. Um, What a glorious reminder that is that uh, the resources that we have from our infinite God that he's given us. So we may not fear that a psalm like this cannot be exhausted in one or even a few sermons. So let us now hear from God's word. You can find it uh, if you're using the Bibles in the P on page 460 reading from Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. So from this inspired song from David, as he models the faithful response to fear, we have for us a twofold defense against fear. And that'll be the, the main point in our outline this morning. So number one... Know your God. And number two, trust his word. So know your God in verses one through six. Trust his word in verses seven through 13 with a response commanded in the very last verse, verse 14. So these two things are not separate defenses, but they're intertwined as one. For to know your God is to trust his word and you cannot trust his word without knowing your God. It's a bare statement, and as as we move along, we'll flesh it out more and add to it. So if you look at the passage, verse 1 is the summary of the whole psalm with the phrase, whom shall I fear, repeated twice. And in verse 14, the response to that inferred truth. But verse 4 this morning will be our key verse, and it's going to be the lens in which we look through the whole passage. Now, now if you look at verse 4, one thing have I asked the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The response that David gives in the face of fear is is a surprising one that we would not uh, initially expect. Because we know from Scripture that David is a great and experienced warrior. But what he does for us, first in verses 2 and 3, is he presents to us what is, in his mind, the greatest example of what a fearful situation looked like. So he says, when evildoers assail me to eat of my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, though war rise against me, yet I'll be confident. So he describes here the situation as like a great battle about to begin, not a skirmish against a lesser army, but an army made up of the immeasurable number of most hostile and barbaric forces imaginable. And on top of that, they all have one single desire, to devour David, not just kill him, but devour him. This is wickedness to the fullest. But because David here is confident, we expect from him that as this warrior king, he would rally his army, he would lead a glorious charge against the enemies, but, but that's not what he does here. Instead, he turns from looking at the imminent onslaught and he he fixes his gaze elsewhere. The king stops, pays no attention to the enemy because something else is drawing his gaze. And then suddenly, for us, we're taken from the scene of a battlefield to the temple in the presence of the glory of God. For this is what we said the first part of our defense is know your God. For the psalm began not with focusing on the encamped army, but with the words, the Lord is. He is my light. He is my salvation, my stronghold. David's deep theology gave him deep-rooted confidence. So brothers and sisters, if we were for us to examine our thoughts this morning of God, and if we were honest, we'd probably find them lacking, both in frequency and in worth. And why is that? Because of sin. So if you remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, after they sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves from God out of fear. Instead of seeking, they tried to escape the presence of God. For while not all fear itself is sinful, all fear is rooted in, in the effects of sin. For after the fall, corruption entered creation. And what fear is, is our self-preservation in this corrupt creation. For we're trying to avoid and run from what is our greatest fear, from death, eternal separation from the presence of the beauty of God. For Adam, when he ate the fruit, did not desire one thing, but two. But as we know from our Lord that no one can serve two masters. So Adam's desire for God was overcome by his desire to be like God. And Adam's sinful desire put a veil over his eyes from seeing the beauty of God. And what followed was a lacking and wrong knowledge of God. So if wayward thoughts of God are the starting point of almost all our fears, is it no wonder then that our father must repeat the command over and over, do not fear. But David with a redeemed heart He has one desire, and it's the beauty of God's glory. And his fear of man is overcome by his fear of God. Not a fear that trembles out of dread, but one that trembles out of a love for God. For the veil has been removed from his eyes to behold the glory of God, and this beauty has overcome him. And so what does he do? He he dwells. He abides. He takes home in the house of the Lord. He doesn't just pass by. But he stays long enough to grasp this beauty. So in our in our hurried culture, think about one of the few things that makes people stop and gaze. It's the beauty of nature. Why is it so common to love what we see in nature and behold it? Because all beauty we see around us are shadows of the true source of beauty, the one who is beauty. But but natural man, they can they can enjoy. A beauty like this but it's only redeemed man who can have intimacy with this beauty in such a way that leads to true saving knowledge because to truly know this god shows in how we put our trust in him as our light as our salvation and as our stronghold so to, to flesh out the statement that we started out a little more to know your god first begins with faithful gazing upon god And so then, in verse 5, David moves into true knowledge. What does it mean that his God is his light, his salvation, his stronghold? In verse 5, he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So Christian, who is God? He is your stronghold. He's one who will hide you in his shelter. He will conceal, conceal you under his tent in the day of trouble. So, when I was young, just to be honest, I was, a, I was a factory of fears. Countless nights, I can remember being unable to close my eyes because once the darkness settled, my imagination ran wild and all I could think about was, what was lurking behind my closet or right out there in the hallway. And when all efforts to fall asleep failed, there's one thought, one thought that would draw me away from my fears and peace filled my mind. I would meditate on one place, my parents' bedroom down the hall. (laughs) And I knew that if I could just work up the courage and and climb out of bed and get past whatever was there in the hallway, my parents, they would take me in and they would conceal me in the shelter of their blanket and peaceful rest would find me at last. And the funny thing was that even though their bedroom was just as dark as mine, The darkness there, it didn't scare me. For the presence of my parents was a stronghold. It was a fortress with high impenetrable walls. And this security brought light into the darkness. And I could see what was truly around the corner, which was nothing. So when David, when he says that God is his light, he is saying that the presence of God comes in power to slay all fears for those who have the eyes of faith to see. And so I must confess, this pattern was not a one-time thing. It happened many times. But, but in thinking about this, after the first time, you know what thought never crossed my mind? What if my parents turned me away? What if they fail me this time? Why? Because I knew them. Not that I knew stuff about them, but I, I knew them. I had experienced the tender care for me. They said they loved me, and I believed them. And every fearful night was a reminder of this love. And in these experiences, they became my light and my stronghold, and they were saving me from my despair. And so you see, when we said before that the first part of defense against fear is know your God, which begins by true beholding, it leads to a true saving knowledge that is made evident in your actions of trusting his word. For if you confess to believe in God, but have never experienced his protection because you have never run to him for refuge, can you truly say that, that you know him? So, brothers and sisters, this morning, could it be that you fear today because your sin has deceived you to make something other than God your stronghold? And now in the day of trouble has come upon you, and now you realize that the walls of your stronghold. Are hollow. So, brothers and sisters, know your God this morning as your light, as your salvation and stronghold, and anchor your souls on his promises. And so that brings us to the next part. We said, Know your God and trust his word. So, for our knowledge of God cannot be based on our own contemplations of God or what we perceive in nature, but they must be based on how he has revealed himself and what he has spoken. So that's what David models here in the next part in verses 7 through 13. We have three pleas or, or prayers that he makes and then a the final confession of belief. But these pleas are not hopeless pleas because confident, David is confident and they're sure they will be answered. Because they are grounded on the revelation of God as David is, is beholding him, is gazing upon him. So I want us to read these pleas as, as promises that they're founded on so we can anchor our souls in these. So the first promise, promise number one, God will always hear us, verses seven and eight. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So David prays in faith because God has promised to hear and to be near his people when they seek him. For David, as a faithful father, he he must have taught this to to Solomon as well. So in 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, when he is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem, he urges the people to pray towards the temple of God, where God's special presence dwells, even when they're taken away into captivity. So in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, verse 38, it says, If they repent with all their soul in the land of their captivity, they are carried captive, and pray toward the land which he gave their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that you have built for my name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and pleas, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this place. And then in 714, God responds, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from wicked ways then I will hear from heaven forgive their sin and heal their land not just prayers or repentance but all prayers God promised to answer for his covenant people in Israel and so Daniel if you remember in Daniel 6 in the day of his trouble when his enemies were encamped around him and they were breathing out violence threatening to throw him in the lion's den. what did he do? he opened his windows and boldly prayed setting his gaze towards towards Jerusalem, towards his hope, towards the temple where he was in exile. And Jonah, in Jonah 2, when he's in his moment of fear because he rebelled against God, pleading for God's mercy and the darkness is all around him in the belly of the well, he prays, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. For he knew God had heard his prayers. So that's the first promise we have. Promise number two, verses nine and 10, that God will never leave you. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. O oh, God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So not only will we he always hear you and be near you, but once you're found in him, he will never cast you off. As, faithful, as sure it is for faithful parents to care for their kids, God's faithfulness is even greater than that. It's basic, but it's easily forgotten because of our sin. But David knew and trusted this promise, the promise that God gave to Joshua on the verge of conquering the promised land. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So this morning, trust that promise you have. And then promise number three, verses 11 and 12. God's instruction will lead us to life. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So God's instruction will lead us to life. It'll be a victory over all our fears and enemies. So once again, we see here the enemies, we revisit them, that David was around earlier, But as before, the fear of man is overcome by his fear of God. He prays for God to instruct him by his word. And he knows the promise that it's his word that leads to life. So look over at at Psalm 25. So in Psalm 25, verse four, it says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. A prayer is a promise when it is founded on God's character. God is his salvation. But what else about God? Further down in verse eight. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So God's instruction will lead you to life because he is good and upright. So listen, so so when times of fears, what they tempt you to do is they tempt you to doubt the goodness of God. And it's in those moments that you are most susceptible to sacrifice your obedience and fall into sin. But brothers and sisters, know your God and trust his word. That his way will always be the path to life. And obedience is always the right choice in the face of fear. Do not trust your own wisdom. Do not trust your scheming. But trust in the God of your salvation. And so then in verse 13. We read, I believe that I should look upon the goodness of the Lord. And the land of the living. So after beholding with true knowledge and trust in the promises, David confesses his belief that he will know that he will see the goodness of the Lord in his life. Now, there's much we can say about um, the goodness of God. One resource I'd recommend after the service, I encourage you to go down the stairs. You know, if you're a fan of great artwork, our uh, middle school and high schoolers, they've done some drawings of the attributes of God, and you can find one on the goodness of God there. You can ask them to explain what the goodness of God means. If you're intrigued by a drawing of a dog, Talk to Hudson over there. He would love to explain to you how a dog and a shadow relates to the goodness of God. But when we say about the goodness of God, it's been revealed already in the whole song. For God's goodness is his beauty of his glory. His moral attributes shining forth for us to behold. And so what is the goodness that, believe, that David believes he will see? That God is his light. His salvation and his stronghold. God will always hear him. God will never forsake him. And God's instruction will lead him to life. So all this shining glory is the goodness that David knows he will see. Okay, but now at this point here, we have, we have to go deeper here. So let's remember where we are at this point. We said that our defense against fear is to know your God, trust his word. But true knowledge begins by first gazing, first beholding, Right. And it's evident in how we trust him. But now, at this point, we must ask, if you cannot see God, how can we truly know him? Where do we find the true knowledge of God? So if you will turn with me to the end of the New Testament, to 2 Peter, if you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find it on uh, page 1018. But in 2 Peter 1, hopefully this text will open up Psalm 27 even more. Verses 3 and 4. We have the apostle Peter here. He's writing to a group of Christians who, as it were, they have their own army of fears around them. They are surrounded by false teachers, false doctrine, persecution, unstable ground beneath their feet. And so Peter in verse 3 and 4 gives a glorious word of truth that has a strong rock under their feet. So in verse 3 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So if you remember back when we were talking about and earlier that sin corrupts our knowledge of God, ever since Adam and Eve fell, corruption came into creation, corruption without and fallen creation and corruption within in our sinful nature, sinful hearts. So to overcome fear is to escape this corruption. How do we escape it? What did it say? Through the knowledge of him. But who is this him? Well, Peter, throughout this epistle, he makes it clear as he contrasts the assurance the believers have. With the destruction that awaits the false teachers. So in chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 19, he says that the false teachers, they're slaves to corruption. They can't escape it. Because in verse 20, he says he states the one thing, the only thing, the one thing that can make them escape the defilements of the world. And it's our one thing as well. So he says it's through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there it is, we have the one thing that David sought in the face of his fears, and the one thing that we must seek. So, Christian, how do you overcome your fear and boldly confess with confidence that you shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because he is your light. So, brothers, remember, according to Ephesians 5, you were at one time darkness. In your sin, you were in the king of darkness. But you yourself were darkness, a rebel to the light. In John 3:19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So this is who we all are, or once were. Wicked men. Who loved darkness rather than the light because our works were only evil. But what was our salvation? The light has come into the world. For Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how is a Christian saved? So our New Testament passage we read in your bulletin, if you go farther down in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it says... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 6, for God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, this is how you were saved. And when you were saved, this is what became your song. One thing have I asked the Lord, That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So if you remember, this is what we learned last week when we looked at the end in Luke 10, verse 41. Remember Jesus' words to Martha? Martha, Martha, you are troubled and anxious about many things. But one thing, one thing is necessary. Jesus is saying, Martha, I'm the one thing. I'm the good portion. If you have me, you have everything. So Christian today, if you have Christ, you have everything. Jesus Christ is your salvation. So how do you escape the corruption of the world? Through the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because by knowing him, We know that we have been saved from our worst fear, from the wrath of God. My friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer, so hear this word now. You may have many fears that you're dealing with today, but you have not realized your greatest fear yet. Because you have not yet faced the wrath of God. But it'd be wrong for me now to try to scare you into salvation, for that would only be combating sinful fear with sinful fear. So do not get me wrong; you must understand the weight of your sin. But true faith is not being scared of hell, but having Jesus Christ as your greatest desire, your one thing. And when that is true, it is what becomes your song. The fairest Lord Jesus ruler of all nature O thou of god and man the son thee will i cherish thee will i honor thou my soul's glory joy and crown when you trust in him alone in the day of trouble the day of wrath he will hide you in the shelter of his perfect righteousness that will be yours only by faith you must be perfect to dwell in the house of the lord So no work of yours will ever do this. Instead, repent of your sins today and turn your eyes upon Jesus and trust in him today as your salvation. But now don't don't misunderstand me here that the fears in Psalm 27 are only the fears of final condemnation because it applies to all fears. But the point is this, when the salvation of God comes in Jesus to take away the fear of God's wrath by being justified by the righteousness of Christ alone. This salvation is the fountainhead and from it, the rivers of God's goodness flow to you to be your salvation in any moment of fear. So not that your fear will not come to pass for we don't have a promise of that. But if it's unbelief causing your fears, you know that your sins will be forgiven. And if your fear does come to pass, it will be for your good. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Amen. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. For in Christ, God now becomes God your father. And he takes great delight in showing his power for his children and saving them from all their fears. But quickly back to the second the Peter verse. There was a phrase there right after the knowledge of Christ. Was it that we said the second part of our defense against fear was it was know your God, trust his word or know the promises of God. And so what does verse 4 in 2 Peter 1 say? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why are all these promises precious? Because they are blood-bought. 1 Peter 1.19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So each of our promises here that we have in Psalm 27, they are blood-bought promises. And you can be sure of them because they are sealed by the blood of Christ, by his sacrificial death on the cross. For in Christ, All the promises of God find their yes and amen. How can we truly know that God will always hear us and be near us? Because we have something greater than Solomon had or David or Daniel or Jonah. For they looked to the temple built by bricks and stone, but we looked to the one who came down in flesh and bone and dwelt among us. And he said in John 2 that he is the greater temple, that his body he raised again in three days, for death could not hold him. And so when we pray, we pray, Believing in his name, we pray in his name. And so hear this promise in First John five thirteen and 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that, we have, confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. How can we be sure that God will never forsake us? Because we have another precious promise. John 6, 6, 37-39. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, On the last day, not even death our greatest enemy could overcome this promise. And it's also why, brothers and sisters, we gather as one body and our church membership matters because in the household of God, we come into the stronghold of Christ. For he said it's his church that he is building and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And our mission as the church, we have the promise from Christ to the church. I will be with you always. To the very end of the age. So, this morning, brothers and sisters, strengthen one another, encourage one another from the Word of God as we go forth in our mission as the church. How can we be sure that God will lead us and instruct us to life? Because in Christ, we have the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have the clear path to eternal life with the Father by abiding in Christ. And as we abide in Him, we learn to keep His Word. 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps my word in the love of God is truly perfected. And it's perfect love, brothers and sisters, that drives out fear. For if the love of God is truly in you, you have nothing to fear. For instead of the dread of judgment, we have the glorious hope that we should triumph over all our enemies without and within. For We shall be made like him, being transformed from one degree of glory to another until final glorification. As we behold our God. And where do we see the glory of God? You read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. In the face of Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, 4. Our final hope as saints. As we are in the presence of the Lamb. They will see his face. The Lamb's face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no, no light of lamp for the sun. For the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. We will see the face of the lamb. And so we say in faith, your face, Lord, do I seek. And so now this brings us to to the final final verse here in, uh, in Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. So David has laid out his prayer of confidence and now he turns to the congregation and he gives them one command to live by in response to all this, wait for the Lord. What does that mean, to wait for the Lord? It's a phrase repeated throughout the Psalms, but before we answer that, let's recap one more time what we said our defense against fear. It's know your God, trust his word. But again, true knowing begins first with, with faithful gazing, and is evident in our actions of trusting him. In Christ, he is our path to the true knowledge of God and the sealing of all our promises. But one more step is needed. Where do we see Christ? So, if you if you were to go back in Second Peter one, in verse nineteen, we have a truth that if it was not revealed in Scripture, I I would not believe it. Peter testifies that he was an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. In the transfiguration. What David longed for Peter saw with his own eyes. But Peter says against this glory. In verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you would do well to do. To pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. So, so this is glorious. What Peter is saying. That the vision we have of Christ. When we open up and read the Bible, it's even better of the vision he had with his own eyes. Now, I know some of you may struggle to believe that because you don't think the glory of your daily scripture reading compares to the glory of the transfiguration. But today we need to trust that this is how God has designed it. We read earlier in our bulletin, 2 Corinthians 3.18, what it say. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God has not desired us to grow instantaneously, but to grow slowly. Every time we read the word or sit under the preached word, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So brothers and sisters, the one who who waits for the Lord is not guided by passion, but guided by patience. The posture of the one who waits is their nose in the Bible reading, their knees on the floor praying, and their souls resolute in trusting. And why has God designed it this way? Because he wants us not to be plants that shoot up and wither on the same day, but lasting oaks of righteousness with deep roots. That's why the book of Psalms begins. some of you may not be in a season of fear right now. By being daily in the word, you are planting your roots deeper and deeper into the earth so that when the winds of fear come, you will not fall. To wait on the Lord is to be expectant that he will act because you trust the promises that you meditate on day and night. So brothers and sisters, what are what are you afraid of? What is consuming your mind today with fear? We said that the the commands of parents tell a lot about their kids, but they also tell us about the wisdom of the parent. So when we read in scripture, do not fear. Perhaps God is saying to us, I am your one thing. I am all you need. Take shelter in my presence. He is your good shepherd. And when you are in the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for his rod and staff will comfort you. And so, brothers and sisters, know this promise of Christ that you have in Christ. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. O God of our salvation, we pray, Lord God, that you instruct us and guide us in the way to life. Lord God, in the face of fears, may we draw us closer to your presence. That we may know you and behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. May we trust the promise that you have given us, that you always hear us in our prayers, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and you will guide us to life. So Father, we thank you for your word. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We ask in this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.